Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. This episode is from the years 2014 through 16, when the series was called Childhood, History and Critique. Enjoy. Hi everybody, this is Pat Ryan, and welcome back to Childhood, History and Critique. And this time, I have a conversation with James Martin, the editor of the Journal of the History of Childhood and Youth and the President of the Society. Jim has been faculty in the Department of History at Marquette University for several decades. He has served uh, collectively about 10 years as chair of the Department of History there and was many, many years the treasurer of the Society for the History of Children and Youth. Our conversation is about 40 minutes. The first part starts with a little bit about Jim's background, how he became a historian of childhood, and we try to relate that to some common themes in the development of the field. And then we move into a discussion of the approaches of the decisions that he is making as editor of the journal, which moves into a discussion of the society and what he sees as some of our challenges on the horizon. I hope that you'll like this conversation or enjoy it as, uh, as much as I did. Take care. Well, Jim, thank you for uh, joining Childhood History and Critique. I'd like to start you know, with uh, you. Could you um, tell us a little bit about your intellectual interests and your academic background? How did you find yourself as a historian of childhood and youth? Well, I think it found me in a certain sense. I was a civil, well, I am a civil war historian. Mm -hmm. And my first uh, book was about Texas during the civil war era. My dissertation was published. I got tenure and I was looking for another project. And uh, I didn't really have one at hand. I had a vague notion of writing a social history of Sherman's March, uh, which a lot of people ended up doing about that time. This is in the late, Early 90s, early 90s, I guess I was trying to figure this out. And I came across two books uh, by guys who aren't involved with the society or with children's history anymore, Elliot West and David Nassau. Elliot West wrote yes. a book called Growing Up with the Country. Yeah. Um, and David Nassau wrote Children of the City. And I don't recall why I came across them, but I assigned them to a survey class I was teaching. And it was a, a class made up entirely of elementary ed majors. So it's sort of an unusual class. Mm-hmm. And they did a comparative paper about these two books, and they really liked them, and I really liked them. And I thought, well, you know, this is unusual and interesting to me, and so I'll have a chapter about them in my book about Sherman's March. Well, one thing led to another, and um, I wrote a whole book about children during the Civil War. And so it's a very happenstance sort of thing. I think a lot of people who come to children, uh, children's history come in this way. They're doing one project or one chapter of a project, uh, a certain source or a certain event uh, strikes them as being interesting, and 
uh, and and they do something. Uh, I've stayed in it, however, uh, yeah. unlike uh, many others. Well, and that that makes complete sense to me. I mean, one one way that I understand your personal story, to put it in broader terms, and I'd like your your response to this, is that one of the things that has defined social history really since the late 1950s, I think it's part, if I were just thinking about American historiography, I would go back to the middle of the 1950s as an attempt to expand the boundaries of what counts as history and who is included and to search for another point of view or elements of the past that uh, that are well known but there are sources that are ignored or overlooked or stories that aren't as central to the existing narrative. And then if you take what you understand, let's say Sherman's March, the Civil War, and you say, well, what are children doing? If you add that on to the existing set of questions, you get um, new ground. Oh, absolutely. I think children's history is sort of the second generation of that 50s, 60s search for uh, unrepresented historical actors. Uh, And it comes directly out of women's history, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, Educational history, which is a different thing entirely, but I think that's actually one of the places that children's history originated, institutional histories of childhood, at least. For me, um, and I think this is what you mentioned, sources and, and either looking at older sources and new or finding new sources. Children's literature had often been the subject of research, certainly, and I use a lot of that in my book, but not as literary things, but as reflections Mm -hmm. of children's experiences and what was expected of children. I also use lots of letters of soldiers to their families. One of the things that a war does is it, uh, requires families to communicate in ways they wouldn't communicate otherwise. The United States was a very literate place by the 1860s, and uh, the war gives us a chance to see real people talking about their lives in ways that they wouldn't have otherwise. And yeah. so there's a lot of lot lot in in the book about relationships uh, between fathers and children, and mothers and fathers, and uh, and so forth. Uh, because of what the fathers are writing and what they want to hear about, too. There's lots of letters from mothers to to soldiers. Uh, and, of course, the first news that soldiers want is, what, what are the kids doing? And these are parts of letters that I, mean, I didn't dig deep these letters. I mean, there are tens of thousands of these collections around, uh, uh-huh. published and unpublished. I did a little bit of archival research, but they're mainly published. And so they've been gone over a lot, uh, but that part of them had not been used. And so it was fun to be doing something and meaningful, personally meaningful, as well as just fun, to be doing something uh, that had not been done before and to look at a well-worn topic like the Civil War mm-hmm. uh, with, uh, with a new perspective. So much there, but I'm thinking of, of uh, on the side, your comment about education. You think about, uh, in the history of education, a historian who was not a historian of, of education per se, but... Bernard Balin, but wrote in, I think the lectures are in 59, the publications probably 60, um, Education and the Formation of American Society. It's a very small book. But a line that really grabbed me early when I was a graduate student made me think about, you know, what the relationship between childhood and history, a line in that book is that education, he was trying to define what education was. 
education is the transmission of culture through the generations, through time. And you know one of the classic definitions of history. What is history? History is the study of continuity and change through time. And so that sort of placed education at the center of what historians ought to be interested in. And it's a pretty small leap from that definition of what history should be and what education is, seeing them in that way related to seeing that childhood is central to the transmission of culture over time and therefore central to history. And so... And that's well, and then Baylor wrote about a time period that is very fruitful with these things, too. Um, yes. What's the name of Joseph Kett's book about youth in the New Republic? Rites of, Rites of Passage. Right. I mean, Kett's not a childhood historian. No. By any means. But because he was writing about a period in which Americans had started to think about childhood, and youth more specifically, and turning them into Americans uh, during adolescence, uh, it becomes this classic book in a field that Ked had never heard of, never belonged uh-huh. to in his own mind. Uh, and, uh, and Balin is a lot like that. They're, I guess Ked's a little bit later than he is, but uh, similar periods, similar approaches. Well, that's what's great about ideas is that I think when I think, and I could be, this is my own perspective on it, when I think about what Balin is trying to do throughout the 60s, and, and he comes out with this a little more explicitly after uh, the lectures that became Education, the Formation of American Society, but he seems to me, if you were to identify him, this is a guy who made an argument that ideas were still important in America, in history, that you couldn't just do a sociological history, that ideas still mattered. You know, you think about the ideological origins of the American Revolution. Uh, and so th- that, in sense, that's something that's very important at the time when econometric history is becoming very important in the late 1960s. But all along, when you're doing work and writing, you know, what are uh, powerful books, they're going to they're gonna have implications for others decades later that may be completely detached from your own intentions. Well, I think uh, Balin you know, started the he started it, but was certainly one of the representative members of the whole generation doing republicanism, you know, yes. as, as, a, as, a, as a thought. That really hit when I was in grad school mm-hmm. in the early 80s. And uh, my favorite class in grad school is really about that with Drew McCoy. We read great books. Yeah. And it's been a very, very important part of my nostalgia for grad school. I don't have a lot of nostalgia for grad school. That's one, one thing I have nostalgia for, in the New England town studies, just to veer off a different direction, old-fashioned, well, old-fashioned us now, but uh, reflecting this new interest in uh, common folk and looking at sources in different ways and communities in different ways. Uh, and and there's, a, there's a thread of children's history that comes out of that, of course, to John Demas. It's, it's fascinating stuff. Um... You you took on the position of uh, editor. How is the journal uh, doing, and and what have you you know learned in this position, and what what opportunities and challenges has it presented? I think it's doing fine. I guess I'll have to ask somebody else how it's doing right now. <laughs> the, the first issue was really the previous editor's articles in a way. The second issue was kind of a mix. And then this third issue that really just came out a few weeks ago. Um, it was pretty much mine. Uh, 
if you measure the health of the journal in terms of submissions, of good submissions, I think we're doing great. Uh, we have the entire next volume filled. Uh, two of them are special issues from the Nottingham, of papers from the Nottingham conference, in fact. Uh, and that's pretty exciting. And then we have kind of a catch-all issue in the middle that will eliminate the queue, hopefully, that we've got built up. Uh, but I think its submissions have been very steady. They've been, I don't think they've been a lot different than earlier submissions. Um, one of the problems with the journal, and we talked about it a lot in Nottingham uh, at a, a session we had about the journal and just also in individual conversations, it's, uh, it's been heavily 19th and 20th century, heavily British, Canadian, American, uh, and that hasn't changed a lot. We've gotten a few submissions from other continents. Earlier periods still aren't coming in. I think it reflects the field, for one thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I think I'm, I'm hesitant to call it a challenge, I guess, because I'm not sure it's, it's either good nor bad. It just sort of is. Um, we publish what we get. Uh, I do recruit up to a point. We'll be looking very closely at sessions in, in Vancouver in June, of course. Um, I'm kind of excited about uh, the possibility of a special issue in Irish childhood. Yes. Uh, that's in the works. Well, it'll go through for sure. I'm not going to guarantee that, but I'm pretty sure it will. And that'll be a very new thing. Uh, I'm also looking for ways, just because we get enough regular submissions of good articles, they don't want to privilege special issues too much. But think more about roundtables, uh, having five or six people write like really short articles, basically, uh, into one super article of maybe 12,000 words instead of the 8,000 words we allow about a certain topic. And there's a couple of those that are in the works, too. So the short answer is I think we're doing fine. Um, we have too many books we should be reviewing. That's, that's, that's a challenge. Uh, is working in enough book reviews, I think, because there are more books that we can review. Sometime during the next issue, we will start publishing a few reviews of uh, books published in non-English languages. Uh, I've been working on that. So, I mean, I think it's going fine. Um, I have been extremely gratified with how relatively easy it's been, or at least surprisingly easy to me, it's been to get people to review both articles and books. I rarely get turned down. They do it on time, almost universally. Um, a confirmation for me of the uh, vitality and the collegiality uh, of the field and of the people in that field. You know, obviously one of the goals of the society and the journal is to be international and interdisciplinary and to kind of push boundaries. But the earlier periods thing is, but it's almost like a critical mass has to get started before the recognition sets in in the community of scholars, let's say, in terms of early modern historians or, or medieval historians or those doing historical philosophy studying the ancients. And, and, until, and, and there are parallel organizations, I know of them, in Britain that have... Uh, you know, scholars from uh, before the 19th century that are working on childhood. But the question is, how do you connect those groups? And and so I think that's just an ongoing 
you know, challenge. I don't know that it really has a solution. You just have to keep keep working. I think that's the case with that and still other issues that face any uh, organization. I think one of the things that I've made some decisions in terms of book reviews and articles up to a point, I'm raising the bar for the historical sensibility mm-hmm. of articles that we publish and books that we review. Um, this this comes out, and, and this is more of a prioritization than a rejection of anything. Um, I have just recently decided not to have reviewed a few books that are straight children's literature books. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we're not going to not do those at all, you know, but to, to do them, they need to be a reflection of some sort of historical question. And that's a very subtle shift. I don't think it's going to make a huge difference, but it, it will help, I think, make it a little clearer as uh, to the path forward. It makes more room. It's entirely the only reason I'm doing it is to make room, you know, in the journal. Yeah. And I think those are, those are always, uh, uh, those are subtle decisions. They're difficult decisions. But as someone in, in my own, you know, personal history, I've had to deal a lot with interdisciplinarity and it's a buzzword and everybody says that speaks of it in a positive way. It's supposed to be a strength if you're interdisciplinary. But part of the problem is another value that we have, a core value in being academic, academics is to try to create a a community of, of intellectual exchange. And in order to have exchange, you do need some common ground. And there are times, and I've worked really hard at this, so I feel like I've I feel like I've earned the right to say this. I spent a lot of years working with sociologists or political scientists and philosophers, lesser so literary critics, but I've actually done a lot of work uh, in literary criticism. And I'm telling you, sometimes it's like ships passing in the night. You think you're speaking the same language and you're talking past each other. And that that's a byproduct of interdisciplinarity. And it doesn't mean you abandon the project, but I think it's also important to be honest about, hey, is there coherence here? Are we, do we have some common terms to talk about? I don't know what your thoughts about are about that, but it well, is I, an issue. Entirely, I mean, my, my, you know, purpose in the journal is, is to promote the history of children and youth. Mm-hmm. And there are many ways of doing that, and you don't have to be a traditional historian. And I'm a fairly traditional historian. I do the most work I've done outside of history sources is in literature, but I don't do literary criticism. I do. I think they call it a close reading, you know, of literature, um, and and to pull things out that I think really help us understand the period of people or whatever. Um, but there's also a methodology issue there. From a journal standpoint, there's citations. The mm-hmm. citation process is different. And that's just, a, that's a little editing thing. But it is a, is symbolic of this, as you said, ships passing in the night. We do things very differently. Uh, and it's, um, something that, you know, we'll, we'll always have a meeting about the journal at the conference and we'll always talk about these things. And the whole board and I have had, you know, conversations about this via email. Uh, mm-hmm. and I sort of announced this prioritization, which I don't think surprised anybody. It's not like it was a really huge shift. I don't want to make it sound like there's a big policy shift here. 
is probably going to make a difference in two or three articles a year not getting published at most. Uh, but uh, but it is something that, uh, from my standpoint, as an editor, is a purely practical thing. But as a scholar and as somebody who's been involved with the society from the beginning, um, it, it is it's almost a, it's a philosophical issue as well. That as you said, there's not a solution. This, there's nothing wrong with it. There's no solution because there's no problem really. Yeah. It is something we have to address all the time. Would you say? Let me ask you a question though about about this shift. Is is how an article deals with time? Is that the most important when you, when you say an article needs to be historical? Is sensitivity to to time and to uh, historical context and to change over time and to periodization are those the main issues? Do you think? Um, for me, I don't, I don't know if maybe I'm just saying it in a different way, but for me, in in terms of the the articles that have come in and the books that have been offered for review, if they are are clearly about the literature as opposed to, just for instance, as opposed to how the literature helps us understand the history, mm-hmm. then I'm not very likely to pursue them because it's a different purpose. Um, if the author is using American literature to help explain uh, values related to American children and connects it in a concrete way to actual children, that's mm-hmm. fine. That's great. This is less a philosophical thing than a practical thing. I've had I've had to create a philosophy to cover a practice a practice in yeah. some ways. Does that make sense? <coughs> well, it does. I mean, I think that's what it, what everybody has to do. I I think. Um, what I'm trying to get after is this distinction between when is um, when is a piece of literary criticism historical and when is it not. Um, I mean, I think that that's a that's a difficult distinction. You know, I think maybe a better example is social science. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of social scientists do, and there's lots of studies in various fields on children and youth, and many of them draw on the past uh, to help uh, populate their evidence in a way. Mm-hmm. And uh, we get a lot of those, too, uh, more so in the past than I haven't had that many come in since I've been chair. There were a few in chair since I've been editor. Um, there have been a few that came in and were in the pipeline when I, I took over. And have dealt with them, you know, more just that's the editing, not the not the not the selection process. Um, um, again, there's going to be a spectrum, and it's going to be dependent on how how good the writing is. It's going to be yeah. about how much space I've got. Maybe there's a couple other articles on that topic. I mean, it's all. I I, I don't want to make it sound like it's cut and dry. It's very very subjective, as all this sort of thing is. Having said, I, I try to. Having said that, I try to establish some standards that I'm operating on, well, uh, and I'm still learning. This is—I've only been in for a year. I, I think uh, this—I think this is dynamite and very refreshing that you're willing to talk about this openly. I mean, the bot—the bottom line is the, the, the uh, journals like this, interdisciplinary journals like this, are difficult. Yeah, they're difficult to edit because you're confronted with a very 
a situation where the boundaries aren't crystal clear. You know, I would say that the methodological issues we're, we're talking about here come into play only when there's a question about whether or not this article is ready for the journal. If I get a really well-written article and the reviews are good and, you know, even if it's really social science, that's fine. I mean, I, I, this is not a something in which, you know, oh, my God, it's not history. Uh, we've had some pretty recent history uh, not written by historians, and so this is not an absolute, but it is a consideration. Well, you've... Um, uh... You're, you've served uh, most of a, a term as the president of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, and I, I guess as a, a, a final question, what, what do you um, see as the, the most important challenges and opportunities for the society as we move forward? I think of the ones we've had all along, uh, which is membership, continuity and membership. Mm-hmm. Um, which is not just us. This is any any society that is an an added obligation, I think, to folks. And I, maybe it's changing somewhat, but my first, you know, we most of us have sort of an, an original society we belong to, the Organization of American Historians or the American Historical Association in the United States, um, or just the Southern Historical Association for me. And I, I go to their conference all the time. I have another society, the Civil War Historian. We all have these these organizations that compete for not our loyalty, but our attendance. Um, mm-hmm. And our, when you get to a certain point in your career, you have time to do that kind of service to a society. Um, and so you have to pick your places and, and, and figure out where it is you have the time and resources uh, to participate. Uh, and we're, we're a society which has great Members have great enthusiasm for the society, but it's not necessarily the first one they have they they, they belong to, mm-hmm. uh, and and so we need to develop a critical mass. Well, we have one now, just barely I think number of members. They keep going. We got to keep getting refreshed membership, uh, and uh, get people to do uh the various functions that we, we ask of our members. We have a lot of things going on with book awards and article awards and program committee, the outreach committee and this and that and the other thing. So a lot of committees and a lot of people have to serve. I think something that is going to become a real challenge is leadership. The founding generation um were not necessarily really young folks. You were pretty young. A few other people were pretty young. I was sort of middle of the way in my career when things started. Others were and have retired uh, since that time. And and so there needs to be another set of folks taking over some of the responsibilities that people who ran things for the first 10 or 15 years. Again, it's been, a, it's been very collaborative and a lot of people involved, but there has been a certain element of the usual suspects uh, being called on again and again to serve on committees or on the board and, and so forth. And I think that's really the challenge uh, for the future of this, or really any organization, I guess. Yeah, yeah for any nonprofit. Um, you know, I think what you're describing is sort of the template of the main challenges for nonprofit organizations, and that is how do you keep membership, dues-paying membership, uh, high enough to sustain the services that, 
you know, are provided. For some organization, that means winning grants from government. And the primary thing for us is membership and attendance to the conferences. If we're at about 260 members right now, we're about 320 right now. We're 320, so yeah. and that's good. I thought that's yeah. a little higher than I thought. Well, so, we'll see if people renew by December 31st. We had about <laughs> 60 people that needed to re- needed to renew since November, but we'll see. That you know that this is going to come out too late then because it takes a while to get these through these episodes through the uh, through the system because this won't air until the late winter. But I mean, it, 320 is great. It'd be, it would be wonderful if we were above 500. Which we might have been for about five minutes at one time. I, I don't think we were ever that big, but uh, it would be great. There's certainly people out there in the fields who would be, who we think would benefit. But again, I think it's a matter of their prioritizing their organizations and how many can they belong to reasonably. I think one thing, and you and I have talked about this before, one thing that our efforts to be diverse geographically and chronologically and even methodologically in the journal and at the conference means that while at any given time we might speak to certain people, other times we don't speak to them at all. Yeah. So it's not like every issue, unless you really are just fasting with all elements of this issue of children and youth, not every issue will have something for you. Yeah. I'm a civil war story and on my other, other side of my life and you know, there's a couple of journals that, that I get there, and there's pretty much something in every journal or journal that that speaks to me. That's not going to be the case with everybody. Um, in in ours, I don't. This is my sense, at least, of things. And so I think you're right on. Yeah, I think you're and, right and on. That's not a bad thing as such, but I think it is an explanation somewhat. Um, the limited information we get from doing surveys. Um, both of members and non-members, uh, is that you know, you know people say no, there's no, they literally will just say what I what I just said. There's not something in the journal for me all the time. Um, it's outside my current research, or I've moved on to other research, um, and so it doesn't matter to me. We do get, as I think I implied earlier, we do get a number of members who uh, have a certain project they're working on that includes a chapter that. They probably gave us a paper at one of our conferences. Mm-hmm. So they're a member for a couple of years, but that project has passed, it's been published, or they moved on, uh, and uh, they just don't continue because it's not quite as uh, relevant to them as something else they might be doing with their money and their time. I think that on the upside, if we have 1,700 people that are on the network H Childhood, you know, if we could get... Um, I guess we're talking about less than a third um, to become members of the society. We would be a lot more secure over the long term. Yeah, and and one of the one of the challenges on the leadership side, and this is, I don't know what you can do other than to just say it, uh, both through venues like this and at conferences. You know, you have an opportunity to get involved. Um, I'm going to be. Asking, uh, recruiting, uh, in the new year for people to get involved with H Childhood. To do, to do some volunteer work is what it essentially is, whether or not it's to take on book review duties, to become a, a list editor, um, or to serve on committees. Uh, there is an opportunity. I mean, one of the great things about Chai 
over the years is if you just, you know, stuck your nose in and said, and I'll be involved, you found yourself being able to be part of putting together conferences, um, serving on, 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 on committees that, um, that did very practical things, awarding prizes. I know that's in, in a sense, that's yeoman's work, but if you, if you don't do that kind of work, you don't have a field. Exactly. I mean, this is the sort of thing that an organization does. And uh, if you want to have an organization, you need to provide this kind of recognition of the field. Uh, I think we help shape the field through these things, not by coming up with a set of topics and promoting them, but just by rewarding good work in the field. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, these aren't easy jobs. We had, there were 20 articles submitted. There were 30 books, I think, submitted this year for the book prize. We have a huge number of proposals for the conferences every year. It would help if we had more people doing them. So you do it once and you're done for a while because they are ad hoc jobs. And, and that's right. And you really don't want the same people to do it over and over again. I mean, just for, for obvious reasons, I've served on the paper selection committee twice. Um, and, you know, you do get to make important decisions, but you don't want it to be the same group. You'd like that committee to have a different composition every two years. And that means you do need a critical mass of 20 or 30 people willing to volunteer. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I do think our demographics are such that we we remain a very young organization, despite the decrepitude of the founding group. <laughs> um it's still a very young bunch. And so one thing that, I mean, I've been the department chair for over 10 years, and, and one thing that you want to protect junior faculty from is too much service work. Yeah. Uh, and I think that does reduce the number of people that we can fairly ask to do things, unless they volunteer, mm-hmm. unless they seek out this work. Uh, because we are, we are younger. Um, I think we have people with young families uh, as a member, just to think of a very practical reason people don't do things, um, it's hard to imagine doing some of this work when you have a three and a five year old at home. Um, and, and, and so they're making choices all the time too. And we're trying to intersect with, with their lives somehow. Uh, and so there's, there's lots of reasons for this being a particular challenge, I think, for us. This, I'll, I'll cut this from the thing, but I gotta tell you a story. Uh, I think this is when we were headed to Milwaukee. Uh, Paula, Paula Fast was the uh, uh, program chair. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that was 2005 or 2003. The, for the very first one? I don't think it would have been the second one, I think. So it would have been 2005. Because we were here in 2001 and 5, I think. Okay, maybe, no, we were going to UMBC then. Okay, that was Chris was hosting it. It was 2003. Anyway, so... We were doing that, and and uh, and uh, I was on the selection committee, if I'm remembering correctly. And uh, you talked about having young kids. I was assistant professor at the University of Texas at Dallas, and I had um, uh, printed out all the uh, proposals, right? And the problem we made a we kind of had to learn as as we went along. We didn't make it, you know, crystal clear that you needed to propose as panels. 
you need to put your own panels together. So we had almost all individual submissions. And then we were, we were stuck with, with about, um, 200, 180 or 200 single papers that we had to organize into panels and also get commentators and chairs. So oh, Paula my says, God, I don't remember this at all. Well, Paula got on the horn, basically, and I can't believe she did all this work. I mean, this is where you get to know people is how much work they're willing to do. She just did, she just said, I will call people and get them to be chair and commentator. And I said, all right, well, I'll do my best to try to present a, a possible organization of, of the panels, and then we work it through. And we had, I think, a couple of people doing this independently, and then we were going to see what we came up with. Well, I had them all over our bedroom at home in stacks. This is 200 abstracts. And uh, I went out. I don't know. Uh, I left the room and, and went out. I had a, a, a an 18-month-old baby and a and a a three-year-old baby, and I think I went out to stop the three-year-old from drowning or something and, <laughs> you know, brought her in and, and got her kind of set up doing something, and the 18-month-old was in the bedroom. Oh, my God. And Jack had reorganized all of the panels and ripped up several of them. <laughs> so wow. I was just... I was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? So I just reorgan- I just got back to work and reorganized them. And, well, and I guess the had point- an opinion about how you'd organize them to start with. <laughs> exactly. Maybe Jack did a better job. Dad, this sucks. We, we can't let this stand. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's one of those things where um, – so I, I, I definitely know what it is to have a young family and to have all of these competing competing, competing demands on your time. But I guess what I would say to, to people who are going through that, um, you know, getting engaged can also lead to you being able to focus and do the, the work that you need to do to succeed. Well, I think especially once you I mean once you get tenure. I mean, I think for us here, and I don't think we're unlike a lot of places. I mean, we don't expect anyone to have done anything outside the department or the college for service. Yeah, and they haven't had time anyway. But I think the associates um, also tend to hunker down sometimes. Uh, mm-hmm. And what I like to call is being engaged in the, this is, I didn't make this up, I don't think, but, but being engaged in the profession at all levels. So it means publishing mm-hmm. lots of different kinds of things, um, participating in the ways that we're talking about, which I think are related directly. You might, you might never co-author an article with anybody you meet. You might not end up, uh, um, using, taking scholarship or, uh, what am I trying to say? Your scholarship might not be something that is affected by this this activity, but it's all part of being a historian, mm-hmm. uh, being an academic, and, and really after tenure, especially I think, is when you should start looking outside your your world, you know, your university, um, uh, and it's more fun for one thing. I mean, that's really the, really that is it. It's more fun to to, to be in the profession. If you're in the profession, 
uh, and not sliding through, you know, and not doing, uh, not, not engaging at all those levels. Um, I've not been involved with a conference, a regular conference that's as intense as ours. I mean, people really go to the sessions and they ask a lot of questions. I mean, we've pretty much done away with having commentators on panels because mm-hmm. we want to make sure we leave room for discussion. Um, we still, we are sticking with this 90 minute session, which seems really short to me because we have so many proposals. We want to work them in. Um, uh, people are just sort of, are, are crowding to be at the con- crowding in to be at the conference. Uh, and there's nothing more invigorating than one of our conferences, I don't think. They're tiring, you know, you get worn out, uh, by the amount of thinking you have to do. Yeah. Um, and, I, and it's an unusual, that's unusual, I think, for a regular conference. I can see sometimes ad hoc conferences about a certain topic be like that, but, um, ours is like that all the time. I experience it that way too. And I think that's something to be really proud of. I think that whatever we're doing to create that, we got to try to keep doing it. And you know, that's kind of the basic thing an organization does. I don't, there's, there's no, uh, there, there's no doubt that that will continue. That's the things we do that maybe we can't sustain if we don't get, I think, um, I mean, there's nothing going to happen anytime soon, but, uh, we have a lot of irons in the fire. Uh, as an organization, the journal will certainly survive. We have plenty of subscribers, you know, for the, for our contract with the press. The conference will absolutely survive because it's so popular. It doesn't quite pay for itself, you know, but it's not, you know, um, it, it can sustain itself more or less. Um, and, and those things can continue no matter what happens. I think for some of the other activities we've decided to do, partly as a way of attracting more members, uh, and for reflecting and representing really the field, uh, we'll have to, uh, we'll, we need to get a few more people that are able to take on uh, some jobs. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online, shcy.org.